Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I will be very careful about slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? Are we going legal on this? I like football. I like football season and all the things that go with it. The last time the Detroit Lions had beaten the Green Bay Packers four times in a row, Ronald Reagan was the president in his first term. Um, the last time the Green or the Detroit Lions won the division, it wasn't even the NFC North, it was the NFC Central, and yet this is the reality we're staring down after last night's game. Detroit Lions with a statement win against Green Bay. Uh, we're going to talk about that myself, Sam Monson, and Brad Spielberger on. Uh, we'll have Vic Troja on later to talk about injuries or the boo-boo breakdown, as Tyler has named it. How's it going, Brad? Great. Yeah, I think the, uh, the Lions might finally break that streak and win uh, the NFC North uh, for the first time ever. Yeah, it was a real statement game for them. I mean, obviously, through three games, three weeks, Chicago has been a disaster. Minnesota hasn't quite been a disaster, but has lost three games as well. So those two teams kind of look already out of it. Um, Green Bay had been the team surprising people, I guess, that they might be able to put it up to Detroit, who came into this year as the, the favorites for the first time since the 90s. And last night kind of said, no. Nah. Like the, the, the Detroit Lions went out there and said, yeah, look, you've had a nice start to the season, but we're better and we're winning this division, and there's not an awful lot you can do about it. That was a statement win in every way, shape, and form. I mean, we'll get into you know, the pass rush and Jordan Love being under pressure on about 47% of dropbacks. Obviously, some injuries there, but the thing that jumps out to me, and I just tweeted this out, but this Lions run defense was god-awful last year, like the worst in the NFL in many different metrics. Right now, they're first in success rate through week four, top 10 in EPA per rush allowed. Um, yes, the game script last night, there was only 12 rushing attempts. I also, you know, Matt LaFleur is awesome, but they ran the first five plays um, out of condensed set 12 personnel. It was like, hey, we're running the football, just, just so you guys know. Um, but, I mean, they were dominant. I mean, they couldn't get any push whatsoever, and that's been the Lions' run defense all year. Crazy turnaround from dead last to, you know, top 10 in a bunch of metrics. Yeah, we're going to dive right into that. Um, 
fall is all about football. It's all about bad weather. That's why Brad looks like he's coming from a dark room right now. But it's also about securing your fi family's financial future, starting with life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life makes it quick, easy, and affordable to protect your family so you can get back to enjoying life. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Get your personalized quote in minutes and then apply when it's convenient for you. It's all online and on your schedule. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. That's meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash PFFNFL. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Yeah, it really was a statement win, Brad. Like the Lions just went out there and from the very outset said, we're going to roll an offense. That's what we've been doing all for, for a while now, dating back to last season. And then Green Bay had no answers. They couldn't do anything on offense. Like I was tweeting at the time, you know, we're, we're a quarter into this game. I haven't left the couch and I have as many yards as the Green Bay offense. And that stayed true until like six minutes left in the second quarter. They, they had nothing going on offense and the Lions just kept putting points on the board. Yeah, in every way, right? I mean, they weren't super efficient carrying the football, but did enough, you know, were effective enough uh, with David Montgomery and they get 32 carries for about 3.8 yards a clip, but it was definitely enough to stay on the field, keep the Packers offense off. And look, the Packers did have a bunch of injuries here and even some guys that did play like Rashawn Gary, like Aaron Jones on snap counts. But we've seen this team overcome injuries like that so often. I, I remember the Rams Super Bowl year. The Rams were coming into Green Bay. The Packers were down a million players. Obviously, Aaron Rodgers was there. Um, and they had a resounding win over the eventual Super Bowl champion LA Rams in that game. I kind of thought we might see the same thing last night. They'd scheme around it. They'd find a way. But no, Detroit, I, I mean, really, it was a dominant outing uh, every step of the way. Yeah, one of the biggest kind of characteristics, I think, of the game was how much the, the Green Bay offensive line that was banged up was just overmatched. Like, they got beaten across the board, but particularly in pass protection. Um, they were down, you know, multiple players. David Bakhtiari is, now looks like he might be done for the entire season. That's a big blow for them. One of the, Still one of the best left tackles in the NFL, particularly from a pass-blocking standpoint. Zach Tom, who's been great since coming into the league, was beaten 
fairly soundly by Aiden Hutchinson on the other side. And then obviously, you know, down to the third string uh, in terms of or your swing tackle, left tackle, Rashid Walker gave up some pressure. Royce Newman inside was beaten fairly handily. Like one of the things about Jordan Love and this whole Packers dynamic has been, yeah, look, there's some things we're working on, young players, blah, blah, blah. But the offensive line had been an amazing platform to start from. It wasn't in this game. I think he was either the least pressured or second least pressured quarterback in the NFL through week three. And he was still good last night when not pressured. He was 17 of 22 for 198 yards, a touchdown and one pick. It was the tipped pass by Alex Anzalone. Just a very nice play there. But yeah, so he is still good from a clean pocket. But like you said, also got a shout. I mean, Ali McNeil is becoming a weekly game wrecker on the interior and they have so many fun, you know, John Kaminsky, all these other yeah. ancillary pieces that really bring an edge to this defense. Yeah, they, they were, uh, you don't see that against the Green Bay Packers very often, even with, you know, Elton Jenkins out and I think Zach Tom also was like a game time decision type player there with an injury as well. But even regardless, we're so used to seeing them overcome that and, and they just could not at all last night. Yeah, I mean, we had been saying heading into this uh, game that the Lions need to find, you know, a complimentary piece to Aiden Hutchinson because he'd been playing amazingly. Um, but when it's only one guy, you can take that away. Or <clears throat> the, the defense has to work extra hard at moving him around and getting him into, you know, beneficial situations. So they can't just take that one guy away. Well, in this game, both of those things happened, right? They moved Aiden Hutchinson around to keep him away from the extra attention. And John Kaminsky had seven total pressures. Elin McNeil had four. Um, Charles Harris had four. Now, they weren't uh, – he rushed the passer a lot, so four total pressures isn't the most amazing return in the world. But the wins were really impressive for Charles Harris when they came. So they had that extra, that extra pressure in the complimentary piece. And then Aiden Hutchinson himself has eight pressures and is, you know, the standard dominating force that he's becoming now. That was the defensive line and the defensive front – that the Lions need to have. 100%, right? And you still, you know, uh, James Houston, obviously out for a, an extended period, but we know he's the, you know, mercenary 10, 15 snaps a game, but he'll probably get five pressures on those 15 snaps. <laughs> so he'll come back. I think Josh Pascal, their second round edge out of Kentucky from a couple of years ago, is starting to get better each week. Very good edge setter against the run as well. Yeah, like that unit is starting to play really well and protecting a secondary that's not bad, but, you know, we still haven't seen Emmanuel Mosley much this year. Cam uh, Sutton had a great game. I had an awesome tackle against the run as well. You know, love this safety trio. Jerry Jacobs is a good backup corner. Like, I think the big thing there, oftentimes these emerging teams that are kind of get all the hype and get all the traction, it's because oftentimes they get good starter-level players. Like, you mentioned Aiden Hutchinson, and we say, okay, this guy's awesome. They have a lot of those flashy names. They now have depth as well at all three levels. Derek Barnes is, you know, playing better at linebacker. Like, that's how you really take that next step is everyone has injuries, everyone has issues. Can you overcome that on both sides of the ball for the Lions? They have a couple good reserve offensive linemen as well. Like, this isn't just a... Hey, they picked top five a million years in a row and they have a lot of fun names. It's like that is also true, but they have depth, you know, at pretty much every unit right now. That, um, yeah, it felt this way at the time, but Detroit must be looking back at that Aiden Hutchinson, the sort of fortuitous way that he ended up available for them at number two overall as just one of the biggest bounces of luck that they could have gotten in the last, you know, however many years. I mean, the decision by Jacksonville to draft Trayvon Walker, this literally unprecedented athletic specimen, number one overall, rather than Aiden Hutchinson or, you know, Sauce Gardner. Like, there were other options that could have gone number one. Instead, they go for this pure 
athletic project. So far, Trayvon Walker hasn't really improved or hasn't done much. Meanwhile, Aiden Hutchinson, the guy who had, you know, the the production in college, um, who had a pretty impressive athletic profile himself, the one question mark was like slightly short arms, right? Aiden Hutchinson is now emerging as a genuine superstar. I mean, he leads the NFL in total pressures. He would because he's had an extra game, but he has eight more pressures than anybody else. So if someone else even wants to join him on 27 pressures after four games, they need eight in the next game. He's looking like one of the best pass rushers in the NFL. I mean, he has now six games uh, since last year with with six-plus pressures. Kayvon Thibodeau has one such game. Trayvon Walker has zero. And obviously, you know, there are other – it's early. They can develop. I think the big thing for me, too, though, is you take Trayvon Walker. He's probably best at, like, four-eye and and playing on the interior in in Georgia. And you bring him in, and he's a stand-up outside linebacker opposite of Josh Allen. And Hutch, they're using him a lot. I mean, you mentioned Royce Newman. That's a massive mismatch. He's kind of the weak link on that offensive line, even when healthy. They're putting Hutch on the interior a bunch, and he's winning a lot of those matchups. So, you know, maybe we see that more from Trayvon Walker. They start moving him on the interior. You know, they lose Arden Key last year, so maybe you, you start to use him differently. But not only is Hutch, like, playing much better right now, and, yeah, maybe people expected that as a guy who was – quote-unquote, closer to his ceiling coming out of college. I also think he's just gotten significantly better each week in his NFL career, so I don't know if I even agree with that pre- you know, precedent. But, um, but yeah, like the, the way they're using him is just better than the way Jacksonville is currently using Trayvon Walker. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably a, a double roll of the dice when not only do you need to bank on a guy reaching, turning into a good player to match his athletic potential, but you also have a guy that nobody quite knows what to do with him anyway. Like, he's, he's not... It's not like he was a prototypical, this is where he plays, and now we just need to get him you know, m- meeting his athletic potential. We have a guy who's like, I don't know where he's best suited. Does he actually belong inside? Does he belong on the edge? Honestly, some of his best plays in his career, college and the NFL, have been in coverage. So he's a difficult chess piece to figure out where you even deploy him anyway, and now you need to get him you know, reaching his athletic potential. The, the Jags... I think have their work cut out to turn Trayvon Walker into a a very good player, but it's been to Detroit's gain because they get Aiden Hutchinson last year. This year's draft class looks very impressive. Sam Laporta made a couple of really nice plays last night. Also had one that he probably should have caught as well. Um, Brian Branch looks like one of the best players from this entire draft. They got him at, what, 45 overall. You know, you can quibble about uh, position value when it came to comes to Detroit's draft, but yet it's difficult to quibble against the players they actually drafted. Yeah, and Brian Branch also ties right back into that same conversation of, look, you know, betting on traits and betting on athletic ability and then molding the player to what you believe at the next level, that is a winning formula for a lot of buildings. Like, we're not saying it's a one or the other, but, you know, Branch was, again, a guy who was a phenomenal player at Alabama but didn't test particularly well. You know, then I think that's why he fell down to 45, was kind of a consensus first rounder, I think, before, you know, the underwear Olympics and all those things leading up to the actual draft. And I think now a lot of teams are sitting there saying we probably should have, you know, looked over that a little bit. He has such great instincts. He's such a good player against the run and the pass. And Brad Holmes, I mean, the general manager deserves a ton of credit because particularly in the secondary, you go back to the Rams days as well. His hit rate on secondary players is like unsustainably high. Like he's really, really, really good at identifying talented secondary players. And that continues. Yeah, the branch thing was so strange because – he had a very wide range of um, 
like opinions on him. There were people that thought he was a top 10 player in this draft, of which I think I was one of them. I was very, very high in branch. And then other people that were like, this guy's a second round pick, maximum. Look, he, he can't run fast. He's, you know, he's got none of the athletic traits you need f- to play that position. Um, like, I think he could play any position in the secondary, including wide cornerback, like number one perimeter corner. And he looks fantastic. He had an ankle injury in that game. I, there were people, some of the medical Twitter guys were like, it's cramp, it's nothing. So hopefully that is the case because it looked pretty ugly when he went down. But he's already looking like a star in the secondary. I think, too, it's cool, and maybe this is just by accident, but you look at the Lions secondary. I know Chauncey Garner-Johnson's now out, but he can play everywhere. Uh, Cameron Sutton can play in the slot and out wide. Brian Branch, like you said, could probably play any position. They have a lot of those flex guys that they can move around, do different things with. Aaron Glenn did that a ton with the New Orleans Saints as well, um, and it's it's massively beneficial to their defense because they're, they're utilizing it. Were you surprised how easily this uh, Green Bay Packers defensive front was handled by the Lions? Um, the Packers had been one of these teams. This is a little bit like Arizona and Dallas this week, right, where the Dallas pass rush had been absolutely annihilating teams for the first couple of weeks, and then they ran into Arizona, and Arizona just bullied them. The Packers had been the next team down from Dallas in terms of just defensive line destruction for the first couple of weeks. And then the Lions just went out there and controlled the line of scrimmage and kind of bullied them. They got, you know, some plays here or there, but this was not what we had seen from the Packers for the first few weeks. I think part of it was kind of game script where, I mean, Rashawn Gary had 13 snaps last night. And I think coming into a Thursday and also the game was out of hand, what, 10 minutes into the game. So I probably wouldn't have played him a whole lot myself either, but had four pressures and won five of those 13 pass rush snaps. So he's still phenomenal. Devontae Wyatt, I think, is starting to look like the first round pick out of Georgia that they they looked, they thought they were going to get in the first place, uh, playing some very good football. So I think there were some positive signs, but yeah, I mean, once you're down, well, like 17-3 or whatever it was, super early in the game, I think that also kind of dictated a little bit. So, not super concerned with the, you know, their their front. They lose Devondre Campbell for this game, Jair Alexander for this game. You know, they they were banged up, but yeah, it was again not a game we're used to seeing from Green Bay on both sides of the trenches. And then the last player probably worth mentioning for Green Bay was Quay Walker, who was all over the field. You know, 14 tackles, three assists, seven defensive stops, uh, but continues his run of having some of the most bonehead penalties that any player has had since he's come into the NFL, right? This guy's been ejected from games twice for ridiculous things in the past. And then in this game, right as Green Bay was thinking about mounting the kind of comeback they had last week, right? They're just about clinging on. They've, they've started to get some momentum back in their direction. They, they just need the ball back. And... He took a field goal off the board and turned it into a touchdown by a ridiculous penalty that you know you can't do, jumping over somebody from a run-up. Yeah, no, he's a special athlete. You see that in space. You know, he can cover. Uh, He didn't have the greatest night covering last night, but you have seen it on tight ends, running backs. Like, he can do a lot of good. But, yeah, I mean, like, it's a four-point penalty on that one in particular. You just can't have that as consistently as you've had it from him so far. Crazy. Like, he's... He's a talented player that can't seem to get out of his own way, which is a problem at some point. Um, all right, that's that's going to do it for our, uh, our roundup of Thursday Night Football. Um, a real genuine statement game for Detroit. I think there are – we talked coming into the season that part of turning a losing team into a winning team is changing mindset. And, you know, 
adapting to life as the front runner and the favorite. And part of that is going out and winning games you're supposed to win, which was this one, right? They had to go out there and say and establish themselves as the favorite this division. They did exactly that. All right, now we want to talk a little bit about rookies. We've got three games in the books for most rookies, four for a couple. Um, we're going to talk about some of the early rookies that have been impressive and some of the early rookies that have been letdowns. Why don't you go ahead and give me your first uh, impressive rookie? Yeah, I think it's Tank Dell in Houston. Uh, I mean, he has come in, he's 5'8", 165, but is playing 75% of his snaps out wide uh, and winning at a consistent level. I mean, top 25 in catches, top 15 in receiving yards, has a couple scores on the year, a bunch of missed tackles forced. He can win deep over the top of the defense. He can also win underneath uh, and then make players miss in space. I mean, he's been a revelation right out of the gate for Houston. I think him and C.J. Stroud already have phenomenal chemistry. It's cool when you know we had the anecdote that Stroud kind of pounded the table for him in the draft. Mm. Houston goes ahead and trades up to get him, and he might already be his number one target. Nico Collins is balling as well. But like he clearly does love Tank Dell right out of the gate. And, yeah, he's been awesome. And I think it's just him and Calvin Austin in Pittsburgh, these 5'8", 165 guys that are winning consistently on the outside – yeah, they're getting a lot of free releases kind of dialed up and things like that. But it's not just that. I mean, phenomenal release packages. Um, you know, Tank Dell was a guy, I probably said this on, you know, our show, but uh, I talked to someone in Houston last year who said he's the hardest working kid he's ever ever coached. And he's just like, he's going to be a good player. And yeah, you probably hear that a decent amount about a lot of different people, but uh, he's proving that to be true right out of the gate. He really is. I mean, look, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna stand in the way of uh, Tank Dell Love. I thought he was a fantastic receiver coming out. I think we saw at the Senior Bowl that he could win on the outside. You know, we we still default to plugging these small receivers in as a slot guy at the next level, but he showed that he has an amazing release package. That he's great at route running. That you, and you can't just jam him at the line of scrimmage because he's too fast. Um, and he's shown that in the NFL. Like, the majority of his snaps are coming outside. He's not in the slot a lot at all, and he's dominating. Um, he looks absolutely fantastic. I went back and checked where I had him in my rankings. He was my wide receiver four, and I should have put him above Quentin Johnston. I didn't like Johnston. I love Tank Dell. I just didn't have the guts. I got scared by everybody else thinking Quentin Johnston was great, Mike Renner having him as his number one receiver, and I didn't have the guts to do it. So... Number four is where he remained for me, but it's still good enough, I think. Um, when I was looking through names for guys to uh, pull out for this segment on, on either side, there's a ton of rookies that are playing really well, and actually not that many that aren't, right? Not many guys you're looking and going, that's disappointing. I would have expected more from him right out of the gate. Like, the good side of this, you've got, obviously, Bijan Robinson looking like one of the best running backs in the NFL already. Puka Nakua for the Rams coming out of nowhere and being their number one receiver and looking legit and being a guy that can still thrive even when Cooper Cup comes back. Dewan Jones, we talked about a lot, got his opportunity to start because Jack Conklin went down at right tackle almost immediately for the Browns. Dewan Jones has looked good. I mean, his grade isn't amazing, but he's been up against, like, T.J. Watt and stuff, right, for – Given what he's been doing, and in particular his pass blocking grade is 74 relative to an overall mark, like that's where you want him good. He looks like he can be a capable starter as a fourth-round pick right out of the gate. I've been really impressed by Dewan Jones. Jalen Carter looks like an absolute dominant force. Christian Gonzalez has been fantastic for the Patriots, a guy who I, I wasn't in love with as a corner. Ivan Pace Jr., an undrafted free agent for the Vikings, dominating. The name, though, that I was going to pull out was, and this was actually before last night's game. I actually forgot he was playing. Brian Branch. We talked about him before. 
That guy, I think, was one of the top 10 players in this entire draft. I think he can play anywhere in your secondary. They have him lined up basically in the slot as a slot corner. He's big. He's instinctive. He can defend the run. He makes pass breakups on, like, number one X receivers. That guy's going to be a star. There's no question about it. Yeah, it's like, that's the thing is it always is this tough balance. But, I mean, you watch him in Alabama, the instincts, like, does he lack speed? Sure. But if he's one or two steps ahead of everybody else on the football field, you can mitigate a lot of those issues. And it doesn't always translate from college to the NFL. And obviously, Bama, you know, plays a ton of zone. Then on third down, you know, play a lot of man coverage. And regardless of how you spliced it up last year, he was still playing very, very well, no matter the matchup or the assignment, um, which I think did say a lot, too, especially, again, in this Lions defense where, you know, Aaron Glenn has played more zone. He came in trying to play a ton of man, and the Lions secondary was just getting carved up left, right, and center. Obviously, you add talent, that helps as well. But, you know, he's still very scheme-diverse back there, and Brian Branch is just a perfect, perfect fit for what they're trying to do. There's also, there was plays on his tape at Alabama where he's running, you know, stride for stride down the field with a guy who runs 4-3. Like, okay, the the 40 time, the time speed, et cetera, yeah, it's concerning. Like, it's a red flag. It's something that you go, uh-oh, I would have liked that to be a 4-3 and we could forget about it. But all it should do is send you back to the tape and go, find me the plays where this is an obvious problem. And, you know, you couldn't really find them. Like Detroit, the, the uh, sorry, the, the Buffalo Bills, we talked about on yesterday's show, they have a secondary full of guys that run four fives, right? Like outside corners. So it's not like you can't be a good cornerback at four or five speed where Brian Branch is, let alone, you know, playing in the slot or playing a more safety defined role. It, it wasn't, I don't think, the problem that people made it out to be when you consider his tape. Like if you had crappy tape and a crappy athletic profile, sure, now we can, you know, now I'm out. But the tape was amazing, and his athletic profile wasn't great. But it didn't exactly get reflected in the on-field performance. Yeah, and this again ties back to Brad Holmes. He he was the one who you know Jordan Rodriguez of the Athletic, who does you know phenomenal work on the Rams. Back when Holmes was there, there was the article about. I don't really care about the combine. The Rams now infamously don't even send Sean McVay and Les Snead to the combine uh, because they watch the tape and, and and derive athletic data from the film in college. Again, that it all ties back to that, and it clearly is working quite well for Brad Holmes and company. All right, who have you got on the negative side of things? Anybody who's underwhelming through the first few weeks? Yeah, so it, it ties to last night a little bit, and, and we talk a ton about you know tight end development is very very slow. Michael Meyer is only 21 years old, but we, we see the Lions go get Sam Laporta at 34. The Raiders fit up to 35 right behind him to get Michael Meyer, um, and he has one catch, well one catch and one two point conversion catch uh, through three weeks. He also has been kind of a negative as a run blocker as well. Not that people thought that was going to be a super strength of his, uh, but I thought he would kind of fall in that category of like, he's not going to displace an end, but he's going to be, you know, he'll get in guys way and be good enough in that regard. So again, still plenty of time. He did also have the classic. If you're injured in the preseason as a rookie, we always then see a slow first eight weeks of your NFL career. It's almost a given if you're hurt out of the gate, but you know, Austin Hooper is a solid player, but for me, they go into week two. Jacoby Myers is out in that game. They basically don't use Hunter Renfro anymore. And I thought maybe we would see, you know, more usage of Michael Meyer, even just more 12 personnel or just more getting him out there, whether it's to actually scheme things up for him or just have him be on the field and, um, you know, do a lot of and he just still really hasn't done a whole lot for them. Still early, uh, but he has been underwhelming as a guy that I thought could come in and make an impact for them pretty quickly. Yeah, it's not been great news for the Raiders across the board early. You've got Michael Mayer. You've also got Tyree Wilson. 
you know, a player. There were people out there that said Tyree Wilson was a better prospect, a better edge rusher than Will Anderson, right? And Tyree Wilson currently has one pressure through three weeks. Uh, I think he still has a pass rush win rate of 0% because I think the pressure was a clean-up play or whatever. It wasn't a, a pass rushing win. It was simply pressure at the end of a play. Uh, an overall grade of 36, that's not great. Um, he has looked like no kind of impact whatsoever. So a lot of work to do for the entire Raiders draft class, pretty much. Another couple of players I would highlight as relative disappointments, given either expectation or just how they've been performing. Um, Jackson Smith and Jigba, you know, the way people were talking about him, guy's going to step in day one, be like an instant impact, high volume guy, you know, an absolute dominant force hasn't really been that in in Seattle so far and you've got a few other rookie wide receivers you know looking really good right out of the gate so just not a great start from JSN um Bryce Young you know it's obviously it's not a good situation in Carolina line is bad receivers are bad um but he'd been playing poorly and then he had the the added kind of bummer of we just got to see Andy Dalton could at least make it work albeit against a bad defense in Seattle that's not great for, for Bryce Young's start. Um, and then John Michael Schmitz, the center from Minnesota who went to the New York Giants. The Giants' offensive line has been a train wreck, so it's not like it's all him. But, you know, a guy that we were pounding the table for as a first-round draft pick, they get him in the second, great value, but he's had a pretty rough start to the NFL so far. Those are the only real guys I thought jumped out as, you know, disappointing starts relative to what we thought might happen. Yeah, I would say one more because you mentioned him earlier. Uh, you know, we're we're talking about how Tank Dell is on the outside. Quentin Johnston is basically being used as a five foot eight, one hundred and sixty five pound <laughs> slot receiver. <laughs> All he does is catch screen passes and and gain two yards. Look, maybe that changes now that Mike Williams is down. But I would imagine, you know, Josh Palmer is the number two receiver now behind Keenan Allen. Look, they wanted to bring him along slowly. They've said that they'll probably stick to that plan, but. Again, not to do this whole game, which which is annoying, but you know, you just mentioned JSN, then Quentin Johnston, Zay Flowers and Jordan Addison are the next two picks, and yeah. they both look pretty darn good so far. Um, and probably again ties to like measurables and some of those things. We'll see again though. JSN had the wrist injury in the preseason. Mm-hmm. You know, Tyree Wilson had the foot ankle thing the entire pre-draft process. So we recognize we're saying this early, but th- those guys have been underwhelming compared to what we probably thought coming in. It's interesting. I saw a tweet yesterday, I think, that was sort of listing all of the, you know, the sort of five foot eight and or 160 pound type wide receivers. You know, that used to be a few years ago, that was basically unprecedented. Guys did not play at that size. And all of a sudden, there's a ton of these guys. You know, Devontae Smith, still with his 166 pounds. Tank Dell, Zay Flowers. You know, all these guys that have come in radically undersized or underweight and are playing well, like are looking good. It doesn't seem to be the problem that it used to be. Like whether it was ever that problem when we just decided it was or whether it was a real issue and now teams are better at scheming around it or simply players of that size are better at you know, getting away from press coverage, all of a sudden these guys are like viable, legitimate forces in the NFL despite that size. Yeah, and I think you're now also seeing, you know, in this draft class, the counter with Emmanuel Forbes, who's about 165 pounds as well, but he's he's been pretty good so far. Hasn't been incredible. Obviously, you know, Christian Gonzalez is the highest graded rookie, I think, on, on the entire defensive side of the football. 
uh, and he was taking one pick ahead of him. Yeah, again, I hate that game. I'm not trying to do that, but um, but yeah, no, I, I think because both sides of the ball are lighter, you know, linebackers weigh 225 now, not 245, and all these various things. Those guys, I think, are going to be viewed in a different light and should be viewed in a different light going forward. So we're going to get to the uh, our, the boo boo breakdown, our injury segment in just a moment. There was one email that came in that I wanted to uh, address a little bit from Adam Gesk, who was basically asking for kind of a little bit of a clarification, really, on how we grade pass rushers. Um, and this has been a big topic since we had you know the Miles Garrett versus T.J. Watt thing, and you know it's it's becoming a, a, a an issue where it's, I think it's clear we haven't necessarily done the greatest job in the world of explaining how the process works, or simply there's new people that haven't heard the explanation before. So you know the email came in and kind of gave a few for instances and was asking how it all works. Effectively, the way it's graded is look we we use pressures to illustrate what we're talking about when it comes to pass rush grade, but they are independent things really. Um, we are grading pass rush wins, and then we are also recording how many pressures that ends up resulting in. And there's definitely a correlation between the two, but it's not like for like. So Max Crosby, I think, has the same number of total pressures as one of the top four guys in our grading, but grades a little bit worse. And the reason for that is we, every grade is different, right? Every pressure is different. A pressure can be an instant win, decisive play in one and a half seconds, splitting a double team, whatever, like the most dominant pass rush win you can think of, that's one pressure. Another pressure is a guy basically losing at the line, locked up by the offensive tackle, and then the quarterback gets flushed his way, and he's able to, like, you know, shed the block, get after him, and cause a little bit of a pressure. Those theoretically are the same stat, one hurry, right? But one of them is a dramatically better play than the other, and is a dramatically better grade. So... Our grading works on 0.5 increments. Zero is nothing. You didn't get any pressure. You didn't get any win on the play. 0.5 is like that marginal pressure that we talked about. A plus one for a more decisive win. A 1.5 for a dominant win. And then what I think is worth pointing out is the Steelers fans and the TJ Watt fans in particular have been sort of complaining that we don't give enough credit for these game-changing plays. But it does impact the grading. So... If you get a forced fumble on a play, you get the bump. You get an extra grading bump on top of the pressure win that you had in the first place. So you are getting rewarded in the grading for the result of the play in addition to the, you know, the theoretical pass rush win that may or may not impact the play. Similarly, if you have that trifecta play, the strip sack fumble or fumble recovery, you're going to get an extra boost for that fumble recovery as well. So you can jump quite a, lo- a long way up for... Um, for the result of the play on top of the process, which is by and large what we're grading, right? The, the pass rush grades, I think, do the best job of, bring, of stripping out and articulating uh, process and pass rush wins, but it is also giving you credit for the results that you know, some teams or some uh, fans of players essentially are to say we don't do it all. It, it is in the grading. I would say, too, just to, I guess, keep things tied to our, our favorite people in Pittsburgh, like a perfect example, even ignoring T.J. Watt, I think Alex Highsmith probably had a similar number of pressures last year versus this year through this many weeks, but this year's pressures from him have been one-on-one wins. Right. I think he actually beat a chip against the Browns on the strip sack. I think there was even like help there for Jedrick Wills. Like That's going to be a one-and-a-half or a two. And, and again, he wasn't bad last year. He was a very good player, got an extension that he deserved, but like he's winning in, in more impressive ways, and that's why his pass rush grade, I think, is like high 80s, low 90s, whereas last year it was kind of like set like low 70s, 
again, the plays are still happening, but how they're happening is different, and, and that is being reflected you know, for a very good young player. I think the, the, the overarching point that I, I want to make clear is, you know, when we're looking, when you're looking at the grades and the stats and trying to sort of search for consistency and, you know, things adding up and, and behaving as, they, as you think they should when it comes to numbers, on every single one of these pass rushes, look at the number of different grades that can be spat out. You know, with all the, the sort of the grading increments and then the extra bumps you can get for results. We're talking a 0, a 0.5, uh, a 1, a 1.5, a 2, a 2.5, right? We're talking a ton of different increments for every single, single pass rush that happens over the course of, the NFL, of, a, of a game, right? So if a guy rushes the passer 25 times, that's 25 times that you know, different number of outcomes. I, I'm not even going to attempt the math on how many like different permutations that is in terms of grade that can be spat out. Um, so even if they end up with the same number of pressures, right? Like, like the grade can be wildly different depending on what those plays exactly were. So I, that's hopefully done something to at least illustrate how complicated the system is um, and how it can have different results for what looks like similar outcomes. So it's tie the whole podcast together, and this is tongue-in-cheek. Uh, you know, people think we, like, maybe give deference to Aiden Hutchinson because he obviously did a lot of work with us before the draft. He had a ton of pressures and nine and a half sacks last year. His pass rush grade was below 70 because a lot of those were cleanups, and a lot of those were three-plus seconds after the snap. Like, the, the, the data was there, the numbers were there, but, but the underlying metrics weren't all that impressive. He had a pass rush win rate, I want to say, around 11, a pressure rate below 10%. Like, so the numbers were there, but again, we weren't like the grade wasn't that strong this season. Obviously that has changed. It's very different. Um, but yeah, it's just, it, it is, you know, the, the nuance and all that. And again, I'll say Sam and I talk literally every week about a couple of little notes here and there that maybe we want to nitpick or, or, or work through. Uh, it's yeah, it's a complicated process. The graders do phenomenal, phenomenal work. Um, and it is always something we're like constantly looking at and reviewing and, and, and tweaking. If we were in the business of fudging grades, because of uh, you know prior take biases, uh, I would have an awful lot fewer dumbass draft takes than I, on record than I currently have. Christian Gonzalez would not be grading like one of the best corners in the NFL if I had the power to go in there and warp his grade uh, with bias to ensure that I didn't look like a moron for saying that he wasn't the number one corner in this draft. That's the only point I would make about us, you know, letting the grades get warped by bias. Uh, we also, by the way, like Mitch Trubisky would probably be grading like a superstar because we had him ranked above Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson in that draft, you know, but that's that's not the way it works out. Brad, pleasure having you on. Good, sir. Thanks for showing up. We're going to kick it over to Vic for the, uh, the boo-boo breakdown. We're going. All right. Big thank you, as ever, to our injury expert, Vic Troja, for coming back in on Friday to the studio to uh, do the boo-boo breakdown, as Tyler has christened it. Um, I want to start off with some players that returned from injury and just kind of look at how they performed, including last night, David Montgomery coming back from an injury. And in case you were thinking, you know, maybe we'll ease him back into the workload. No. 32 uh, attempts for 121 yards and three touchdowns. Yep. So... Straight back in at the grindstone. Yep. Yeah, and he, he looked really good. You see a drop in production a lot of times when there's a quad injury, about 10% of their normal productivity in a running back standpoint. He looked good. And I think that might just be a testament that this might have been more of a 
quad bruise, like a, just more like a hematoma got hit, direct contact, than it was like a strain. Um, man, he looked good. He looked explosive. I thought that his agility was great. Uh, the thing I like to watch about Montgomery too is he like never falls backward. Mm. You know, he's always going forward. So he's he he looked good. And you kind of looked on the flip side where you know the running back from the other side, the Packers, Aaron Jones coming back. You were wondering what he was going to do. And he wasn't productive at all coming from a hamstring. So dealing with thigh issues on both sides, obviously, I think Montgomery was really impressive. Yeah, only 3.8 yards per carry for David Montgomery, but 2.9 of those came after contact. He broke eight tackles. You know, he looked good. I mean, that was one of those cases where he was making, you know, a ton of little moves here and there, which mm -hmm. is kind of characteristic characteristic of Montgomery all the way back to college that's his running style is that incredible work in a phone booth and able to make little moves and, and gain the maximum amount of yardage that's there absolutely um, the other player that we want to talk about in terms of a return was Joe Burrow mm -hmm. one of the players we focused on last week in terms of the the dilemma that the Bengals are facing they opt to play him. You know, we need Joe Burrow more than we uh, need him healthy later on in the season because 0-3 is a problem. He played – he didn't play badly, but I think it was visible that he was dealing with, right. you know, with this calf thing, um, both in terms of his overall mobility. Uh, the game plan seemed to be structured around it. Let's get rid of the ball immediately. Let's try and not expose him to anything. Um, and I think it also visibly affected his velocity. Like, mm -hmm. you, were, you could see some throws – Joe Burrow doesn't have the strongest arm in the world anyway, and when you take a you know a, a percentage off it with a calf injury, if he can't drive off that leg, it, it it had an effect. Yeah, it really did. If you think about like how you're gonna change your mechanics throwing the ball, if you can't drive off your back leg as much, you're gonna use more torso, you're gonna try to throw with your arm a little bit more, and you're obviously gonna lose velocity. Um, I think he I think he definitely showed those signs of weaknesses, especially on some of those like out routes. Mm. And uh, we talked about it last week, though. They had to make the decision, are you going to play him or sit him? It clearly looks like they're just going to continue to ride this out, try to get a couple wins. Unfortunately, when I look back at their schedule, probably this would have been the week to sit him if they weren't dealing with an 0-2 right. situation. So they have a tough tough road ahead of them after the bye. And uh, I think that he's just going to pretty much monitor his calf every single week and just hope that it doesn't get inflamed again. And, you know, is is the version of Joe Burrow we saw in that game likely to be the guy we're going to see for the rest of the season? Like, that's not going to that's that's not going to disappear, you know, just through three or four weeks of being careful on it. it this is going to be who he is for the extended foreseeable. Yeah, I think that you're going to see pretty much what you got. Now, they're, the medical team is probably going to toy with like what device they're going to have around his ankle, like an AFO or what type of brace on his calf, compression sleeves. He's going to obviously have times where he might feel a little bit better or worse. But I'm going to kind of predict that we're going to see what we saw. I didn't even see him want to scramble. No. Like, I mean, he just like <clears throat> gets out of the pocket a little bit, drifts away from the rush. And he was not looking to take off. And maybe that's a comfort thing. Maybe he'll get a little bit more comfortable to do that. We'll see as, as time goes on. But right now, I think you're probably going to get relatively what you saw there. I also think not only is he, does he not want to scramble, I think he's deliberately basically hitting the turf when anything 
anything comes around him. Like there was a play where I think it was Byron Jones on the edge drove Orlando Brown Jr. Um, back into his lap, and he got rid of the ball. But it was one of those, you know, you get rid of the ball, and then the sort of tackle ends up bouncing up against you. And normally yeah. you'll see a QB sort of bounce back off that and hop and, you know, just sort of ride it, right? Mm-hmm. Burrow just fell over. They yeah. just immediately hit the turf. Like, I'm not going to rock back on my calf to absorb that hit. I'm just going to fall over. That's the safer thing to do. Right. I, I think there were a couple of those in there where, like, he's clearly, I think – taking that approach of I'm not going to stress this calf in any way, shape, or form, even if that means like falling flat on my ass on a play for no good reason. Right. I wonder how many times pre-snap they're saying in his earphone, like, just go down. Right. Remember, go down. remember, <laughs> don't like, do anything. Yeah. Um, okay. A couple of, um, you wanted to mention Nick Chubb, who we talked about before, but apparently there's, there's been a kind of re-diagnosis over his knee. Yeah. It's really interesting with Chubb, when you watch the video... I mean, it was awful. Yeah. And they're coming out now and saying, well, just MCL, possibly partial ACL. So how is that even possible from that that video? So when I looked at that again, and I think my, my conclusion is I do think that he dislocated his knee still. I think that it relocated by the time the medical team was out there. Okay. Right, which often happens. Like it can, you can just relocate just by positioning your leg, straightening it, holding it. Uh, so they don't necessarily have to diagnose him with a dislocated knee if right. they get on spot and that's not there. The other thing is, if he has like MCL and they really can't define because of all the swelling, like that there's meniscus damage, like we talked about, anything like that, they can find that once they go into surgery. I think that he's at least dealing with two ligaments still. I, I believe that just by watching that, if he's not, I mean, they are all very stressed. So I think that when the comes back and the reports come back, don't be surprised if there's two of his knee ligaments that they do report as damage, not just the MCL, which is what they're talking about right now. Right. Um, another injury that happened and inevitable that we would be talking at some point in the boo-boo breakdown about a Los Angeles Chargers player. My, and Mike Williams would have been pretty high on the list in terms of guys you would uh, expect to show up. Right. Mike Williams done for the year in ACL. He seems to be one of these guys that is, I mean, we talked before, injury prone, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's, he's got a pretty extensive history now of injuries. Yeah, and with Mike Williams, it's, it's one of those that he is a physical player. He kind of reminds me of like, you know, where uh, Debo Samuel is just a, a physical wide receiver, lands hard, uh, you know, goes into contact. Mike Williams is that, but he stays off the field. He's injured every single year. And it was funny, like, I'm not trying to laugh at the situation of players getting injured, but of course it's the Chargers that have right. like Eckler and Williams. I mean, their, their war adjusted um, injury rate is so high compared to other teams because they just have prominent players that always get hurt. And Mike Williams is one where what he's 28 years old, torn ACL. Maybe they were talking about some MCL damage. And as of this morning, he hasn't had surgery yet, which means that they're probably just delaying it a little bit to get that swelling down. But I do see him coming back next year and he has a good timetable still. It's still relatively early to get back week one. But at his age, his injury history, everything like that, I think um, 
the only thing he has going for him is he's kind of a freak physical athlete but as far as just like all the other factors of that i just mentioned he might not have like the best chance of recovery and then you got to look at the depth and and the chargers locker room you know quentin johnson is there and uh you got some other guys that are ready to replace so you mentioned austin eckler who is now you know out an extended period of time with this ankle injury mm -hmm. um what are we dealing with there? And is there any chance that this is connected to this whole offseason of, you know, running back contracts? And because there was speculation at, at one point, clearly they're not winning the at the negotiating table, right? Almost all the every one of these guys basically that held out or tried to agitate for more money didn't really get anything out of it. Um, but there was speculation that that will lead to a kind of malicious compliance, you know? Oh, well, during the season then, if I actually do have an injury, I'm not gonna play through it because why would I, right? You're not giving me recognition with money, so if I'm hurt, I'm hurt. Right. Um, are we seeing this or is this just an injury that is, is, turns out to be more serious than people thought when it happened? Yeah, I think that um, Eckler's injury probably was more of a high ankle sprain. Uh, average of two and a half weeks for a running back with a high ankle sprain. Um, so he's due to come back. He did get into practice, and I trust Austin Eckler's um, uh, opinion when it comes to things. Like he, he normally is pretty straightforward. He came out and said, "If I'm on the field, I'm probably feeling pretty good." And he was at practice. Now I don't think that he's just going to be able to go out there and take the workload. Uh, I think that he's going to probably ease back into it, get limited snaps. That if he is if he is active, if they still have concern of a re-injury risk, which is 26% for the ankle injury that he suffered, they might want to just hold off another week for him. Uh, I don't know exactly when their buy is. I think it's coming up pretty soon. So if their buy is coming up, it might just be one too where they want to just hold off for the entire um, bye week too and just let him recover completely. Um, the last guy I wanted to bring up before we talk a little bit uh, more generally about concussions is David Bakhtiari, who has been dealing with what sounds like a chronic knee injury now for a while. Um, and there was speculation that they were basically, that he was basically refusing to play on turf for a while. <laughs> but now it's reported that, you know, he had an arthroscopic knee procedure and he's on IR and he's probably going to get shut down for the season but mm -hmm. the sounds like the hope was that whatever fix they're doing is going to lead to a fully healthy Bakhtiari in 2024 but right. this has been lingering for such a period of time now what are we dealing with in his knee uh well it looks like when they they went in and they kind of just scoped it it was kind of a cleanup see how he feels they're probably going to go back in for a second surgery and reconstruct whatever partially torn in there if there is um you know scar tissue that kind of stuff what they'll do is they there's even techniques where they can um clean up some of the damage all the fraying on top of like a meniscus and just make it so when he comes back he's dealing with a fully healthy knee i think that what was happening is they were flirting with that line of like can we delay this and mm. just get him back on the field versus making this worse? And he probably tested it out and probably with the medical team too, they went out there and were just like, yeah, he's gonna need more work than what we were able to do. Uh, so I think that that's more playing on the safe side for such a talented player. And they're just trying to make sure that he doesn't do anything of significant damage if he comes back this year. Cause he had been like, this has been a multi-year thing now. Like he had mm -hmm. kind of come back last season and 
it was this. He'll play a few games and then he'll have a game off. And like, we were sort of wondering, like, is this what we're going to get from David Bakhtiari now? It's going to be a sort of three games on, one game off type of deal. Like, how, how has this been? Does it seem like it's been mismanaged, or how does how do you get for, to that situation? Uh, and then end up in a world where actually if we do this procedure, we can go back theoretically to being 100% down the line. Yeah, I think that's a, kind of exactly what you said is they mismanaged it, that it was kind of like, hey, we're going on a roller coaster of inflammation. He's really inflamed. Let's shut him down for a second. Really inflamed, shut him down. He's It wasn't working. So I think that they're just like, hey, this hasn't worked in the past. Obviously, there's a clear history of, of their routine doing that. Let's just completely shut him down, take the season, and hope that we get him to 100% recovery and stop flirting with that line every three weeks. Is that the the kind of line between, um, you know, do we do surgery or do we try and manage it without surgery? Or is that just a different potential treatment option that they were trying with. I think it's just that's the line that they're flirting. And right. you you see that with players. You sure. See, you see guys that, hey, we're going to just try and see how this works, go out for the week, and if you start playing okay, good. If things get inflamed, we might have to shut down and take another approach. Um, okay, you wanted to talk about concussions. Yeah. Yeah, so if if you've noticed the string of concussions, I mean, going on right now even like – I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see just more big-name concussions being held out, not necessarily if they um, on the overcautious side or if, they, if it's serious. Like, you know, you have Garoppolo and Rich, Anthony Richardson coming out, uh, Gus Edwards. Every single week we're seeing starters that are pulled out. Um, but I wanted to address just a couple things that the NFL is doing and especially what we're going to see um, on our side. So... There is so much innovation right now going on with the helmets. Uh, there was seven helmets that were like the top performing helmets just in 2020 as far as like concussion safety. And since then, those seven helmets are actually banned because they've made that much improvement on, on helmet wear. Uh, there is about a 25% reduction in concussions right now. Um, and this is basically... 90 to 95% of the NFL players are wearing these top performing helmets. So you're going to see a little bit reduction, but the concussion stigma is so high. Like you hear concussion, you think about it a lot. It's all over the news, especially after like what happened with Tua and yeah. everything. Um, but what I wanted to make clear that people don't understand is when somebody is in concussion protocol, it doesn't mean that they're not going to go. So concussion protocol is like a five-step system that the NFL does. And just because on a Thursday they're still in concussion protocol doesn't mean that they're not out there practicing. I mean, the fifth step is literally doing full-on activity team drills. So if they're able to do that, it doesn't mean that like, oh, no, they're in concussion protocol. I don't think that they're going to be able to play. Uh, and especially because concussion protocol doesn't need to happen one day at a time. You can go through two steps of a protocol within a given day and still be ready so a lot of times teams kind of slow play it they give the players a weekend to recover of recovery and then hit Wednesday Thursday Friday and see how much they're advancing and by Sunday's game you know they get checked out by the independent neurologist and they're good to go I think the key seems to be that Thursday practice before the game yeah. like if you can if you're practicing in that Thursday coming off the concussion protocol you're probably very late in the thing and 
that's when you need to be practicing for the teams to give you, you know, a shot of playing because that's like that's the last real practice before things fire up. So if right. if the guy is not practicing on that Thursday, that's a pretty bad sign for him coming out for that game. But if he is, it's a pretty good sign. Yeah, exactly. And not to mention that that practice can still be concussion protocol. Right. Right. So just because it says that protocol doesn't mean like the the person was sitting on the sideline. Um, yeah, and obviously. The Dolphins held Jalen Waddle out last week, even mm-hmm. though like he claims he was kind of good to go. Yeah. Miami, of all teams, was obviously exercising an abundance of caution, given what happened with two of the year before. Right. Um, the helmet thing is interesting because, like, that's basically the sole focus of the helmets at the moment, right? Is like let's improve the the performance of concussions. Um, you see in training camp, they're all wearing those guardian cap things, which are effectively just rugby scrum caps, supersized to fit over a helmet. Yeah. As far as I can tell, the design of a traditional football helmet is like it works in direct opposition to uh, success against uh, to mitigate concussions. Like the hard shell is the problem, whereas like the reason the guardian cap things are are useful in terms of mitigating against concussions is because they're soft pads on the outside, so it absorbs quickest. Like. Mm-hmm. It seems we're in a weird world where we're just sort of persisting with this hard shell thing because football has hard shells, yeah. whereas actually if you really wanted to clean up the concussion thing, why why are we not working on a helmet that looks more like a guardian cap than a football helmet? You know what I mean? Like It feels like we've actually identified the thing that it should look like, but we can't possibly use that because a helmet looks like this, right? Like. It feels like we need to connect those two ends of the thing and actually design a helmet that is designed to stop concussions. Right. Yeah, I think I wish I was in the lab and like actually seeing these studies and these tests because I could probably speak more highly to it. But I always thought, why can't you have like, even if it's not like hard outer shell, but like you can still have the design and everything and just have it be a softer material. Right. I but i don't know if that's like if there's some science behind like that absorbing shock versus inside the helmet because we all know that like in the helmet with all those padding is not only necessarily um protecting your head from like when you get that initial blow but it's the reverberation of your head inside the helmet that matters uh so i think that I think that you you brought up a really valid point, but that's kind of above my pay grade because I'm not sitting there like yeah. you know trying to hit these helmets against walls and stuff like right. that. I don't know either, but my gut feeling is it sort of feels a little bit like you know a car designer that's constrained by like legacy style elements that they need to keep in the car. You know, like if yeah. you were going to design the the next Mustang, what would it look like? You're like we well, don't get a blank sheet of paper. You're like, well, it has to have. <laughs> these things otherwise it's not a mustang right, right? Yeah, it has to have it's like shell. you can go design a helmet go go design me a helmet that stops concussions but it has to have <laughs> yeah. a hard outer shell and a face mask right. right these are the these are the things that it needs to have in its existence otherwise we can't even talk about it yeah. right and yeah. they're like well that's a problem because the first thing i would do would get rid of the hard shell and like have the you know the, the scrum cap sponge part on the outside and right like, nope yeah. can't have it you know that conversation has been had too like we're like well why are they doing that in preseason and not it was like well, yeah i mean that's it, that's how ridiculous it is like all these things are 
Every training camp practice now, it's like, well, you got to have these things on. They help against concussions. Well, then why are we not wearing them in the games? <laughs> like if, that's, if those stop concussions, why do we take them off as soon as the real games start? Well, because, you know, it has to look like a helmet. Yeah, and the logo. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I, that's, a, that's a, tough, uh, a tough constraint at the moment when it right. comes to concussions, I think. Um, all right, Vic. Thanks very much. Yeah. Uh, we will be back on Monday, myself and Steve from the studio, reviewing every single game, but that'll do it for our PFF NFL podcast for this week. Thanks for listening. Thanks.